0: ASD cannot under law conduct mass surveillance on Australians, nor has it ever sought to. Our cyber security mission has not been recently bolted on to ASD. It has always been an intrinsically intertwined part of our core mission for 73 years. I'm sorry if this is news to you, but not all Australians are the good guys. Some Australians are agents of a foreign power. Some Australians are terrorists. Some Australians take up weapons and point them at us and our military. Some Australians are spies who are cultivated by foreign powers and are not on our side.
1: G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. And those comments that you just heard were made by Miss Rachel Noble, the Director General of the Australian Signals Directorate. And we will be hearing from Rachel in this the second of our In Conversation series with leaders from the Australian national security community... ...which we are hosting to celebrate our 10th anniversary here at the National Security College. So first off, we will be hearing from Rachel on the history of ASD... ...and how it was born out of necessity during the Second World War and its evolution to what it is today. We'll hear how cyber security fits around the more traditional role of signals intelligence... And we'll also hear from Rachel before she joins Rory in discussion on what role the ASD has in conducting surveillance on Australian citizens at home and abroad. Let's hear from Rachel right now.
0: In 2020, ASD is charged by the government to fulfil three core missions, to generate foreign signals intelligence that gives the government insight into global strategic and military developments, and we do, to protect our nation from cyber threats, from governments to the private sector, small and large businesses, and to families and individuals, and we do, and to conduct cyber offensive operations, and we do. I want to take you on our 73-year journey about how we became the agency we are today, and I want to leave you with three key messages. Firstly, ASD's functions have been added to over the years but have not changed. Our cybersecurity mission, or information security, as it was once known, is as old and as foundational as our SIGINT mission. The two are entwined and complementary. Secondly, ASD's functions have been a matter of public record since 1977. ASD's lawful ability to collect intelligence about Australians has been public for nearly 20 years. Why? Because some Australians are not on our side. Thirdly, ASD has intrusive and expensive capabilities which are aimed at our adversaries who seek to do harm to Australia and its interests. Keeping secret the nature of that capability and how we deliver our mission remains as vital today as it has ever been. What's important is that we are transparent about what we are allowed to do under law. As the Australian Signals Directorate nears its 75th anniversary in 2022, it's timely to reflect on the history of the organisation and how its missions have been added to over that time in the context of Australia's strategic, changing strategic environment. Much of what I'm about to tell you is actually already a matter of formal public record. So today I'm going to pull all the pieces together and tell you our story in the context of our historical timeline. It is important that the functions of all intelligence agencies are made public and that those functions that we carry out are carefully governed and independently oversighted. We do have intrusive powers and we certainly have very intrusive capabilities. Being transparent about the uses to which these capabilities are put and what the law allows us to do is important, as is being clear and unequivocal publicly about which targets our powers can be used against. There is good reason, though, why the question of how we gather this intelligence is kept secret. Keeping the how a secret is as important today as it has ever been. In a context where our Prime Minister has recently likened our current strategic situation to that reminiscent of the 1930s and 1940s, It is perhaps a stark reminder that times do change and things do get better, but they can also get worse. ASD's early role was to bring together civilians, Australian Navy, Army and Air Force personnel to support General MacArthur's South West Pacific campaign and the US Navy's 7th 7th Fleet Commander by intercepting and decoding enemy radio signals. After the war the government gave in principle agreement to the creation of a new signals intelligence organisation the Defence Signals Bureau on the 23rd of July 1946 bureaucratic infighting never happens today unfortunately delayed formal approval by cabinet until the 12th of November 1947 Created by amalgamating the Central Bureau and the Fleet Radio Unit in Melbourne, the Defence Signals Bureau's official birthday is 1 April 1947, and I'm sure there's a joke in there somewhere. And the new Bureau opened at Albert Park Barracks in Melbourne on the 12th of November 1947. Its role was to exploit communications and be responsible for communication security in the Armed Services and Government Departments. Albert Pout Barracks was a pretty awful place, you can see it there, a collection of World War II huts which froze in winter and burned in summer. There was even a heat committee that roamed the corridors on the hottest days to ensure the temperature had actually reached 100 degrees Fahrenheit before staff were allowed to go home. Today it would probably be deemed unfit for human habitation. We also had substantial assistance in the form of technology and personnel from our counterpart organisation in the UK, the Government Communications Headquarters or GCHQ. This laid the foundations of what became known as the 5 Eyes sigint partnership of the US, the UK, Australia, Canada and New Zealand. And I'll go on record here as saying that this alliance of like-minded states is the most powerful, effective and enduring intelligence partnership the world has ever known. The Bureau was renamed the Defence Signals Branch in October 1949, a title it retained until January 1964, when it became the Defence Signals Division. When the newly badged Defence Signals Directorate finally moved to new purpose-built Accommodation in Victoria Barracks in July 1979, James Killen, the Minister for Defence, sent ASD this encouraging message. We cannot talk about the activities of the Directorate. The national interest and indeed the wider interest of civilised mankind sweep you to silence. Can I say that in the years to come, our people will look back with gratitude to you for your devotion. It would be wrong to conclude that because a man cannot speak if he is not heard. Silence has forever been a part of courage. I guess at this distance we can forgive the gender specificity of the message and just thank the late Sir James for the generosity of his words. ASD's core missions to collect intelligence about foreign adversaries and to protect the security of our own information from adversaries has remained unchanged through the 73 years. Although today we have more stakeholders and customers for our security advice than we once did. When I first started in ASD in the early 90s, I'm not telling you exactly when. You can work out how old I am. We called the protection role information security, Today we call it cyber security. Our information security mission then was focused on the protection of military and government communications from foreign adversaries. Today, ASD is charged with providing information security, or as we know it today, cyber security advice and assistance to the whole nation. Our customer set has grown over the years, but the mission has not fundamentally changed. Nor has the reality that what we learn from collecting intelligence about others profoundly informs how we protect ourselves. These two missions have always gone hand in glove. They are two sides of the same coin. The bindings of these two functions is perhaps more important today than it ever has been. Because we try to gather intelligence from foreigners' communications, we have deep insight about how to protect ourselves from, well, from people like us. Not only have we learned from 73 years of experience of managing an integrated workforce, we've also evolved that shared tradecraft to manage a far greater set of complex threats, from state actors to low-life opportunistic criminals, now targeting not just governments and the military, but our private sector, small business, families and individuals. Posing such threats was once the remit of only great and powerful state actors, Now it's the remit of anyone with a mobile phone. Information security played a pivotal part in what was arguably one of the most important military campaigns of World War II, the Battle of the North Atlantic. This battle was waged from 1939 until the defeat of Germany in 1945. The German Navy relied on the Enigma machine to encrypt its message traffic they considered it unbreakable and felt safe exchanging relatively large volumes of information between U-boats and shore command. However, as a result of the captured code material and the code-breaking expertise of the British, the Enigma Code was broken for a short time in mid-1941 and again with greater success in late 1943. During the periods of code-breaking success, the number of Allied ships that were sunk began to decline, in part due to the knowledge of the location of the German U-boat patrols. While not the solitary reason for the North Atlantic victory, the Allied exploitation of German encrypted information changed the game for one of the longest and most complex naval battles in history. The Germans were confident that their information was safe, and they continued to use Enigma to their detriment. If a leak had made it clear to the Germans that the British were able to read their encrypted messages, we can only ponder now about how any German response might have impacted the Battle of the North Atlantic. But the value gained from the Enigma intercepts was undermined by a serious communication security failure, which allowed the U-boats to detect and hunt down Allied convoys in the North Atlantic. The German Navy's own signals, intelligence and cryptographic service, the B-Dienst, broke the British naval combined cipher number three in October 1941. This cipher was used by the British Royal Navy and later the US Navy. One estimate suggests 70% of the convoys intercepted by the U-boats between December 1942 and May 1943 had been primarily located with intelligence based on the German exploitation of naval cipher number 3. The discovery of this vulnerability in May 1943 and subsequent measures to improve communication security gradually deprived the B-Dienst of this source of intelligence. Good communication security was just as important as intelligence obtained through Enigma to the safety of allied convoys. ASD is both the poacher and the gamekeeper. Both sides of our brain work together to protect ourselves from people like us. We do SIGINT and cyber security and we've been at it for 73 years. In 1977, the Hope Royal Commission marked the first occasion where the functions of the Defence Signals Division were made public. On the 25th of October 1977, the Prime Minister made a speech in the House of Representatives about the outcomes of the Royal Commission on Intelligence and Security. Prime Minister Fraser said of the Defence Signals Division that it was. An organisation concerned with radio, radar, and other electronic emissions from the standpoint both of the information and the intelligence that they can provide and of the security of our own government communications and electronic emissions. It is an agency which serves wide national requirements in response to national priorities. He went on to say, In close conjunction with the Defence Force, DSD provides a capability which is just as much an integral and essential part of a modern defence posture as a capability in air or ground defence or maritime surveillance. That capability is a sophisticated one for which long periods of training and development are required. The Royal Commission said that the preservation of secrecy as to the agency's operations is vital. It was through this Royal Commission that the recommendation was made that the Defence Signals Division be restyled as the Defence Signals Directorate and made responsible to the Secretary of Defence. In discussions of intelligence matters, the Prime Minister went on to say, this government will not provide further information about DSD nor confirm or deny speculation or assertion about it. In June 1988, the government decided that the Defence Signals Directorate should move to the Defence Headquarters at Russell offices in Canberra to ensure a close relationship with Defence and other intelligence agencies and its customers. It was not long after that that I joined ASD as a codebreaker. I didn't like that job. At all, I just thought I'd share that with you. I'll tell you about that maybe in a different speech and about what I hope we've learned from how we have historically failed to engage women in STEM. Here's my spoiler alert. Don't starve them of human contact to make them sit alone with a computer all day. But I digress. So in 2000, work began between ASD and ACES to develop the Intelligence Services Bill, ASIS had sought to make public its functions in legislation as a result of the Samuels and Codd Commission of Inquiry in 1995, but that work had been dormant for some time. ASD initiated the development of the Intelligence Services Bill as changing technology had inadvertently rendered some of its collection activities potentially illegal, and ASIS joined together with ASD at that time to place both agencies' functions in statute. The Intelligence Services Act achieved royal assent on 1 October 2001, only 21 days after the world witnessed the horror of the terrorist attacks on the United States. In 2001, the then Foreign Minister, Mr Downer, in his second reading speech introducing the Intelligence Services Bill to the House of Representatives, described ASD as... Australia's National Authority for Signals, Intelligence and Communications and Computer Security, and in that capacity provides an important service to the Government and the Defence Force. The Intelligence Services Bill set out for the first time in legislation the control and accountability framework for ASD, and in that speech on the 27th of June 2001, Mr Downer remarked the bill would create a balance between greater openness and the need for continued secrecy. At that time, the activities of ASD were already subject to extensive oversight set out in the 1986 Inspector General of Intelligence and Security Act. In describing the functions of ASD, Mr Downer said both ASIS and ASD have an external focus in the furtherance of Australia's national security, foreign relations and national economic well-being. Therefore, both agencies are empowered under close government oversight and control to collect intelligence information in accordance with national priorities and long-standing intelligence tasking mechanisms and to distribute that intelligence. He also made clear that ASD... May provide assistance in various forms to Commonwealth and state authorities concerning the security and integrity of information and in relation to cryptography and communications technologies. In fact, the Act itself, Section 7, makes clear that ASD is to perform its functions to obtain intelligence about the capabilities, intentions, or activities of people or organisations outside Australia. It was at this time that the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security was created to oversight the activities of ASD, ASIO and ASIS. ASD was initially not included at the time of the Intelligence Services Bill's introduction on the rationale that it was within the defence portfolio and thus was already subject to oversight by the Senate Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade Legislation Committee and the Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade. However, the Joint Select Committee on the Intelligence Services recommended its inclusion, a recommendation accepted by the government. The debate on the bill at the time was bipartisan in nature, but in his second reading debate, Senator Faulkner acknowledged that the bill would "...empower ASD to obtain information in respect of foreign persons and organisations overseas and Australian persons and organisations overseas." He remarked, It is clearly possible to envisage circumstances in which intelligence collection related to an Australian person would be appropriate and desirable. An Australian person engaged in terrorist activities overseas is one obvious example, he said. It was his intervention and a suggested amendment to the Bill which created the modern-day arrangements for such activities, whereby a ministerial authorisation of any intelligence collection or other activities relating to Australian persons must be obtained. These written authorisations must be in place for such collection or other activities to occur and cannot exceed six months' duration unless renewed by the Minister. These activities must be connected to to ASD's legislated functions and they are activities that present a significant risk to a person's safety, where a person is acting for or on behalf of a foreign power, activities that are or are likely to be a threat to security, activities related to the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction or the movement of goods which would be subject to Australia's defence export controls, activities related to a contravention or a, an alleged contravention by a person of a UN sanction enforcement law, which was added in 2011, committed a serious crime by moving money, people or goods, committing a serious crime by using or transferring intellectual property or committing a serious crime by transmitting data or signals by means of electronic electromagnetic energy. Faulkner said an Australian person engaged in terrorist activities overseas whether directed against our nation or any other country would clearly be a legitimate intelligence target. He also said people smuggling would be covered as it relates to an aspect of national security that is our border control. Such an approach, he said, would be broadly comparable to the Special Powers Warrants provisions of the ASIO Act, and thus it was agreed. And these are the rules by which ASD still operates today, nearly 20 years later. In relation to the privacy of Australians, the Bill set out for the first time that the responsible Minister for both ASIS and ASD must make written rules regulating the communication within government and the retention of intelligence information concerning Australians and Australian corporations. Previously, ASD had operated under guidance known as the Rules on SIGINT and Australian Persons, which governed its activities in relation to Australians. However, though approved by Cabinet and monitored by IGIS, the rules did not provide statutory protection for Australians. ASD welcomed the additional safeguards mandated by Parliament. The Act makes explicit that the Attorney-General must be consulted in the development of these rules. The IGIS also monitors compliance with the rules. Shortly after the Act received royal assent, ASD embarked on a comprehensive training course for all staff to ensure that they understood and were fully compliant with the new obligations and responsibilities that were now required by statute. This was a major cultural change. Under the old regime, an infraction of an Australian's right to privacy could have been treated as an error of policy or administration and dealt with accordingly. Now it was contrary to law. ASD worked extremely hard in concert with IGES to embed a culture of compliance in the very DNA of the organisation. For nearly 20 years, ASD's role in relation to intelligence collection against Australians has been laid bare on the face of legislation. It's hardly a modern revelation that ASD has this role. Transparency is not a new feature of our story. Some people may have just forgotten what has already been said over many years. And I'm sorry if this is news to you, but not all Australians are the good guys. Some Australians are agents of a foreign power. Some Australians are terrorists. Some Australians take up weapons and point them at us and our military. Some Australians are spies and who are cultivated by foreign powers and are not on our side. Our allies have similar powers, and as I've described, there are many careful controls which protect Australians from ASD and its capabilities. I want to underscore this point when it comes to intelligence collection and cyber-offensive operations... ASD is a foreign intelligence agency. It is a matter for ASIO to concern itself with Australians who may pose a threat to our way of life. ASD cannot, under law, conduct mass surveillance of Australians. It is true, as is evident from ASD's functions being added to over the years, that agencies must and do have carefully considered conversations about how to manage contemporary threats including whether the management of such threats might ultimately involve legislative change. And after doing so, agencies will provide advice to government about their options. The government then decides how best to address any risks in our security architecture. It is the role of elected officials, not public servants, to weigh threat and risk with the national interest. That's how a democratic system of government works. As I said, ASD cannot under law conduct mass surveillance on Australians, nor has it ever sought to. After my foray into code breaking, I slowly made my way to the branch within ASD known as Q Branch, which is now the Australian Cyber Security Centre. You can have a look at that photo of Mark. ASD has long had branch names that mean nothing. This is based on the rationale that it makes it hard for the adversary to ever work out how you're organised and how many there are of you, which is an operational security approach that many intelligence agencies maintain today. This branch name, however, unlike the others in ASD, did have a meaning. The Q stood for quartermaster, the keeper of the keys. We still keep the keys today. It is one of the most important functions that ASD still performs, to generate the cryptographic material that encrypts our government and military communications to keep them safe. Q-Branch, or Information Security Branch, was also where ASD's long-standing communication security role was fulfilled. The evolution of the internet, email and the general convenience of electronic communication soon meant that ASD stood up up the Cyber Security Operations Centre in January 2010, it was in November 2014 that the Cyber Security Operations Centre evolved into the Australian Cybersecurity Centre, which was the next evolution of Australia's cyber security capability. As the internet and all the goodness that it has brought to our lives became more pervasive, so too came the realisation that it had provided a new and terrible vector through which malicious actors and criminals could seek to harm Australians. On the 15th of February 2018, the Honourable Michael McCormack, the then Minister for Veterans Affairs and Defence Personnel, made a second reading speech in the House of Representatives introducing amendments to the Intelligence Services Act. These amendments implemented the recommendations of the 2017 Independent Intelligence Review. These amendments established the newly named Australian Signals Directorate as an ind- independent statutory agency within the defence portfolio reporting directly to the Minister for Defence. It brought some cybersecurity functions from the Attorney-General's Department and the Digital Transformation Agency into the Australian Cyber Security Centre. The functions of ASD were also bended to recognise the expansion of ASD's cybersecurity responsibilities to include providing material advice and other assistance to any person on matters relating to the security and integrity of information which is processed, stored or communicated by electronic or similar means, and cyber security which, Mr McCormack said, will allow the ACSC to liaise with industry. This is a significant milestone in ASD's history. It marks the recognition that ASD's communications security role through its ACSC, had been expanded in the era of the internet to provide communication security, or as we call it today, cyber security advice to the whole nation, no longer just to government and the military. The Bill also amended ASD's functions to allow it to combat cyber crime offshore. And it included provisions that the Director-General must consult regularly with the Leader of the Opposition about matters relating to ASD. In that speech, Mr McCormack also said that the bill included an additional function for ASD to protect the specialised technologies and capabilities acquired in the performance of, it, of other functions. The ASD, he said, cannot perform its important functions without being able to protect its tools to ensure the ongoing utility and protect Australia's national interest. And here we are today. In recent times, the legislation governing ASD's functions has been updated more frequently. This reflects the rapid change of technology and the inherent challenges of writing legislation that is technology-agnostic and future-proof. This has become increasingly difficult as technology and the imaginative and wicked ways our adversaries exploit it is harder to predict. ASD needs to ensure it provides good advice to government when current laws might unintentionally impede its effectiveness, consistent with its already legislated functions, just like it did in 2000. As the years have worn on, the revelation of ASD's functions in the public domain have been made by successive Australian Governments. This has in part been motivated by the realisation that maintaining the trust of the Australian people in ASD is achieved by the government being transparent about what intelligence and security agencies are asked to do. But I would argue not how it's done. The how must necessarily be kept a secret. There are good reasons why intelligence agencies need to keep how they collect their intelligence a secret. It's one thing for an adversary to imagine what our capabilities might be. It's entirely another thing to have that confirmed. If our our adversaries know for certain how we are going about it, they will almost certainly take steps to prevent us from doing so, just like we would do. The government has made nearly 75 years of investment in ASD and its cyber security, intelligence gathering, and offensive capabilities. Some of our capabilities are unique in the world. They are expensive and precious. They give us insight into the threats posed to our great country and that of our close allies. And as we have heard recently from the Minister for Defence, nations are increasingly employing coercive tactics that fall below the threshold of armed conflict. Cyber attacks, foreign interference and economic pressure seek to exploit the grey area between peace and war. In the grey zone, when the screws are tightened, influence becomes interference, economic cooperation becomes coercion and investment becomes entrapment. Transnational threats also remain. Terrorism, violent extremism, organised crime and people smuggling. The COVID-19 pandemic is still very much an active and a very unpredictable threat. All of these pressures are contributing to uncertainty and tension, raising the risk of military confrontation. And those posing the threat go to great lengths to hide their activities from us. As we have become more sophisticated, so have they. Our edge is based on them being unsure about what we might actually be able to do. We want them to think that we are their worst nightmare in the, in the hope that they will be deterred from their actions in the first place. It is this foundational principle which is as true today as it was at its inception in World War II. Why give away more to our adversaries than we need to? Once we talk about how we do it, we can lose that capability forever. Arguments that support the idea that we should give up protecting our secrets just because learned people have thoughtfully speculated publicly about how we might go about collecting our intelligence is not an evidence base to argue that we should confirm the accuracy of their speculations. And leaking is not formal avowal. The notion of neither confirm nor deny is as powerful today as when it was first expressed by Malcolm Fraser in 1977 and reinforced by Mr McCormack in 2018. So transparency is important but not at the expense of us losing the very capability that we use to keep Australia safe. There is a careful balance to be struck. We are in a near impossible game. The threat to our way of life is more real today than at any time that I've ever known in my career. So I leave you today with the three key messages that I started with. Our cyber security mission has not been recently bolted on to ASD. It has always been an intrinsically intertwined part of our core mission for 73 years. Our ability to collect intelligence on Australians is not new because not all Australians are the good guys and some things need to stay secret for good reason.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much, Rachel. I think that was... Uh, it was comprehensive. It was illuminating. It left some questions unanswered. I suspect that was um, how it was always going to be. But thanks for making a little time now just to uh, take a few questions or join me, join me in a conversation. Um, and I wanted to draw you out on on a number of the issues you've discussed, perhaps take a few of them a bit further as well. I want to begin, I guess, with a, uh, a quote, which I think... Uh, perhaps, uh, Colleagues here suggested is uh, certainly one of the best quotes in the business, um, and that's really uh, from a former head of MI6 that you can tell a lot about the soul of a nation from its intelligence services. And I guess to me that that can be interpreted many ways, but it turns us to that question of transparency and also the questions of accountability. Uh, I think that you've um, that you've gone to. Now, I would suspect that one of the purposes of your speech today is to address the public debate uh, and sometimes controversy that there's been over the years around ASD powers, Uh, and I suspect you've uh, probably provided as much clarification and corrective on that as you you feel you can today. Uh, But while your speech does include elements of transparency, and I like this transparently secret characterisation, um, I would also put to you an assertion that there is more Um, that there is more that in time you could usefully say publicly, given particularly that ASD's mission is now so many-sided and some areas of your work, particularly to do with um, ASD, with with, with the offensive cyber operational side of things, um, perhaps, in fact, do lend themselves to more transparency uh, than has been the case. And i just end on the point of maybe testing that assertion that deterrence works precisely by not... Revealing your capabilities. Sometimes deterrence, escalation, control, norm building, and so on might work with some more transparency. So I'm going to throw all of that at you, just as a as a starting point. Would love to hear your thoughts, Rachel.
0: Thank you. So I, I, I would actually argue that we have been um, pretty transparent, and in fact, Mike, who's um, here with us today, made a speech to Lowy mm-hmm. last year where he actually uh, set out an example of one of our offensive cyber cyber operations against um, Daesh. So um, my, my reading from around the world is that Mike, Mike went further than probably many of our Five Eyes colleagues have, in fact, in describing the nature of those operations, which is really important, but also I think so importantly told the story of one of our female operators and described her, her skill set and her role in ASD, which is really important to us, to encourage all uh, people um, about a prospective career in ASD, but particularly women, as we've touched on. Um, I think, of course, over over time, we will recalibrate that, of course, we would do so um with the government, and I've set out the history of ASD and kind of shown that over the years, times change. More has been said about its functions by the government, and it's appropriate that that is the case. But I think, um, you know, we we do a lot uh, in terms of speaking publicly, particularly about cyber threats and. Um, Particularly how people might uh, take action to address those threats, which in turn imposes a cost on, on those actors, which is uh, really important. And in that context, you know, as we saw with the announcements by the Prime Minister and the Minister for Defence in, in June about a significant cyber activity against Australia, that our, our defence is the best offence. and what we saw in that was an incredible response by Australian private sector, individuals, 270,000 downloads of our Mm cybersecurity advice that we make public to the whole country um, to help them take action to protect themselves. So I think that we've done a lot to tell people about the threats. It's maybe not couched in the same enticing, spooky spy terms Mm -hmm. that um, we might um, like to hear about, but there's certainly a lot out there.
2: That's that's really useful. I'd just um, I guess go a little bit further on the again cyber strategy and doctrine question because I think and, and I think I acknowledge the points that you've made and that um, your predecessor made particularly about the um, uh, Australia's you know really direct involvement against um, against ISIS. Uh, but I guess if you look if, if you look over time uh, and if you look at some of the US um, I guess statements on this and recently of course uh, US head of cyber command uh, General uh, Paul Nakasone did. did Set out in, a, in an article in Foreign Affairs, thoughts about American cyber strategy and doctrine. Can you see more of that coming out in the public domain over time from an Australian perspective, and, and in particular, uh, even more insight on, I guess, the decision-making processes? How, how, and when do we use offensive cyber? Who decides? How is that authorisation developed?
0: So I guess um, we have a great relationship with the Department of Home Affairs and a lot yeah. of people um, seem to struggle with this separation of policy mm. and operations. So the first point I'd say is it's the Department of Home Affairs' job to set out the best cybersecurity policy for our country and of course we engage very closely with them in the development of that. And they have, through the government, expressed that in the recently uh, announced Cyber Security Strategy 2020, which actually does set out the intent of um, many government departments, but importantly including ASD, as the government's tech agency Mm. or main operational agency in this regard. So, um, that's sitting out that strategy, that's really their job. I'm sure we absolutely help to explain that to people, but we operationalise that and try to turn that into um, real activity where we will increasingly um, improve our understanding about the cyber threats posed to Australia and increase our ability to share that threat intelligence information with anyone in Australia who needs to know it and needs to take action in response to it. And we um, have been funded by the government to develop the capability to do that at machine speed. And that's the way that we will really uplift um, Australia's defences against the many cyber actors that are out there.
2: Thanks, Rachel. We'll take you to the business... Business, if you like, the business side of cyber in a moment because we have a few colleagues in the room who are CEOs of various um, cyber security uh, companies. It's clearly a growth industry. Uh, We've also got colleagues from the university sector in the room. And you've mentioned uh, a little already about that signalling and that engagement of of industry. But uh, looking over the horizon, uh, how do you see that role for ASD really as an advisor to the Australian business community and to citizens on particularly on the emerging risks to do with with critical technologies, uh, 5G, AI, data analytics, and so forth, that will also be gained and weaponised by adversaries, by uh, by terrorist criminals, maybe uh, malign state actors as well. What do you see as the, I guess, the scope for more public engagement, and, and really what worries you as well on this front?
0: We are absolutely trying to get much better at. at Partnering with Australian yeah. industry, and I really use that 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 word. There's a lot that we understand in government, and I've said out today a lot that we um, do understand about what's happening from our amazing intelligence capabilities. But um, as government people, we don't necessarily understand well the the impost or how that all looks from a private sector's yeah. uh, or a private company's perspective. So we've um, already started to partner with a number of companies and actually agreeing to embed each other's staff so that we better understand what what we have in terms of a threat picture and how and whether and in what form that is actually valuable to one of our crucial uh, private sector companies, how it looks from their perspective, so that we can understand if we're giving them things that are useful and if not, what could we change about that? but also vice versa. So we're really um, putting a lot of energy into that. And we've recently um, redone our website to make it really easy. If you're an Australian individual and you're looking for advice about how to turn on the right settings on your social media, it's nice and easy for you to find now. So it's targeted to you. uh, now, help me out here, Rory. What were some of the other So, ideas? look, I, I think also,
2: yeah, what, really, what, what are the worries... Look, I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate a bit more. I mean, what are the emerging or critical technologies that would worry you from a security perspective? And I guess I'm also going to that question of uh, industry, universities as well. Um, you know, to what extent is the protection and, and development of those technologies in Australia a priority for you? And, and I guess how can these different sectors work together... Uh, more effectively on this.
0: Yeah. So the first thing I'll say about em- emerging technology is that I'm super excited about about that. Mm. I can't wait to see what the world is is going to deliver in the future. 3D television, self-driving cars, there's some of the things that I'm personally <laughs> looking forward to. So I think we can be really positive about mm. those technologies and not be afraid of them. But I suspect that our fundamental advice really won't change to whether you're private sector individuals, uh, engage a little bit in your understanding about where is my data, what is happening to it, who is it being shared with, and am I okay with that? So that kind of foundational understanding, whether it's me or my children engaging on social media, or a big company, who has access to it, who's controlling it, where is it, you know, how is it being used? Those fundamental questions about understanding the foundational uh, issues there won't really change irrespective of what technology kind of brings us in the, in the future and, and we should be nothing but excited about that. I think.
2: What about for ASD's edge though? I mean because there's a lot of emphasis there on the edge that ASD has and obviously there yeah. are plenty of details that you can't elaborate on. But I guess to what extent is the protection of dual-use uh, research, of emerging critical technologies in Australia going to be essential to ASD maintaining its edge? And perhaps this isn't just in Australia, it's in five no, eyes countries great. as well.
0: Well, it's going to be a, a really careful balance to, to be struck. Um, but I, I really do believe that our edge is our people, not really necessarily the technology, whilst that of course forms a part of it. The people that we have in ASD amaze me every day. (laughs) I, I go home and think, that wasn't what that technology was designed for, but oh my gosh, look at how you've thought your way through about how you might use it in the furtherance of our mission or about how we've imagined our adversaries might come at us through it and the clever ways that we've stopped them from doing that. So, for us, the edge is really about finding the right people to employ in ASD and continue to value diversity, which I think ASD and DSD before it actually Mm. has a really long history of doing. um, People from all different walks of life. One of our one of our most extraordinary cyber offensive operators didn't finish year 12 and was a hairdresser. I mean, you know, we are open to all, every kind of person with any background, and it's the imagination that makes the difference.
2: I've always thought hairdressers make good intelligence collectors, but um, there <laughs> well, you go. I think
0: there's, a little, there's a little hint in there that being really clever on. Um, in those sort of operations is actually understanding about how people think and, and being really interested in, in people. And hairdressers are wonderful at that. <laughs> They're wonderful at making conversation with anyone yeah. who sits in that chair. I'll just yes. you.
2: And you think you can trust them? Yeah, um, you
0: do feel like you can trust them. Yeah, sorry.
2: Look, let's, let's get back on track. I mean, I think I'm glad you've gone to the people side because I really did want to also draw you out on maybe not your next personal speech you know the um, sort of the uh, the Rachel noble story of, of that of that young cryptographer um, in the in the 1980s but you know you did allude to the fact that it wasn't uh, always the most enjoyable experience uh, being a young crypto a young woman mm-hmm. uh, in that environment and I guess You've also pointed very clearly to not only to the diversity that ASD has, but the diversity it needs, uh, the skills that you're going to need for this really disruptive decade ahead. So how's ASD addressing the challenge of skills, recruitment, diversity, really for the next decade? And I guess a slightly self-interested point here, how can universities such as this one uh, play in that? Yeah,
0: Absolutely. Well, um, well, as you you know, we have a wonderful strategic partnership with ANU, and we have a fantastic collab initiative that Eleanor mentioned. Um, I think we really, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this, especially uh, you know, reading in COVID times. You know, the worrying um, situation for young people these days, the concern that they and their mums and dads have about their prospect prospects for employment, I think there's a great deal that we can do and there's some great international models for this where we need to look at ways where we can help students, encourage them to study a course like here at the ANU in science and cybersecurity, where we've already connected them to a job at the mm-hmm. end of it. And I think... Um, There's something in that that we can work on together with ANU, but also with other Aussie unis that um, could really help support younger people, or all people studying at all age, of connecting what they study to employment, and that seems to be something that will benefit Australia writ, writ large, but also benefit people like ASD and ANU, of course, and... You know, as I said to you, whilst um, you know people with tech skills, are of course, highly valuable to us. And you know, every day my mind is boggled by the just the incredible technical capability of people in ASD. We we equally have people um, with different languages, of course, um, arts degrees. Uh, you know. Um, Meteorologists like myself <laughs> you know all sorts of uh, backgrounds and I think you know part of me coming out and my predecessor Mike coming out and talking about our organizations is actually to help people understand what we do and the sort of skills that we're looking for and we can certainly help each other in that as well
2: one important point that I think some of that brings out and, I, and this is obviously not just a challenge for ASD, but really the whole national security community, is also that question of security clearances, I yeah. guess. Uh, so I don't know if you can share any thoughts on that at the moment, but again, uh, young people interested in this line of work, not quite sure how to shape themselves for that. Uh, long, it takes a long time often to wait for the right clearances. Okay. Uh, any thoughts or advice on that at the moment, or is that something we can come well, back to? No,
0: absolutely. We are, we are We are trying to rethink and recreate ourselves in, in that um, sense, Rory. It used to be that you couldn't work in ASD unless you could get a top-secret, highest clearance mm. of, of the land. These days, um, we do so many functions, and I, I talked about you know our cybersecurity defence function, our, um, our engagement function with industry... Those are roles in ASD that don't necessarily require you to absolutely have a Mm -hmm. top-secret clearance. So we're now restyling ourselves as a multi-classification employer. We have buildings where people can um, join our workforce with only a protected clearance Mm -hmm. or a secret clearance and, of course, a top-secret clearance, so we're now much better postured to manage that. And that also helps us as an employer get people in the door. So, you know, that delay used to be a really big problem yeah. for us. You know, I'll tell when I do write that other speech, Rory, and tell you my personal story. Um, I I joined. I got the give job offer. I'll give you a little <laughs> hint. I'll give you a little hint. A bit like Mark Burgess told in his ASPE speech. Um, the job ad for ASD. My sister was living in Canberra, and I was in Melbourne she uh, cut it out of the newspaper for me, then posted it in the mail to me in Melbourne and a letter arrived from my sister saying, oh, well, you might want to apply for this, this job. Um, and then I did and I won it and then I was working at Optus and I was working at Optus and I was working at Optus and I was thinking, oh my gosh, nine months later, yeah. I finally was able to move to Canberra. So those days are gone for us. We're really rethinking how we employ people and how quickly we can get them to join That's our That's a really
2: important point. And I think just maybe on career mobility, if there's any point you could add there as well, because I think a lot of people assume this is... And, and you, you've had a homecoming, if you like, to ASD, but you've, you've moved around in the system, you know, very, very widely. And, of course, there's also people who move in and out of the private sector. Yeah. How um, frowned on or embraced is the idea of career mobility these days for the sort of people you want for ASD?
0: Well, we really encourage it. Um, it can be... But all things in moderation and all in a mix. We wouldn't want everyone to sort of rush out the door, but we absolutely encourage that and will often... Um, try to provide people that safety net to come, yeah. come back. So letting them go on comments and that sort of thing and actually organising those comments as I mentioned, yeah. placing our people out with big companies to get that experience in the hope that they'll come back. Of course, if they don't, that's still great for us because there's someone out there who hopefully loved their time at ASD and will um, always have that in their thoughts as they mm. pursue... Their career, otherwise, so we see it as all
2: upside. It's really uh, good to hear, useful to hear. I think, look, the last point is we're almost at time. I want to briefly go to the five eyes, to the which, of course, is something that back when you joined ASD was a state secret, you couldn't talk about it. Now, <laughs> five eyes is a common turn of phrase. You know, every hairdresser knows what the five eyes is. Um, but seriously, so this five eyes intelligence sharing arrangement, some would call it an alliance. Um, Australia's important in that, ASD is important in that. Quick question to you, to you is, how important is ASD in that? Uh, are we uh, much less, if you like, or are we always an intelligence contributor, not just an intelligence taker? And most provocatively, are we now, Astro- as Australia, is as ASD, um, America's most important signals intelligence partner?
0: Well, actually... Um Maybe a lot of people don't know this but, but the idea of the Five Eyes and, and the alliance was actually born of the SIGINT relationship and so it's um, it's now something that people sort of express in many different forms including economic um, cooperation but it was actually born in SIGINT days. What's so powerful about it is that we we burden share and so every... Every organisation in that Five Eyes relationship um, contributes uniquely to the greater endeavour. So, you know, the whole being greater than the sum of its parts. So, its contribution is, of course, um, unique. Is based on its expertise, its unique access and capabilities, and it's not necessarily related to its size. But of mm. course, you know, scale—the bigger you are, the greater the, the scale. So every every one of the five eyes countries in our SIGIN alliance makes a unique and valuable contribution. So it kind of wouldn't be right to then try to c- compare them. I don't think. But of, of course, the United States is a you know an incredibly Incredibly valuable partner to us, but so is the UK, Canada, and New Zealand, and we all bring our different and unique skills to bear to this endeavour.
2: Can you see the five eyes expanding, or is that uh, is that still sort of a distant conversation?
0: That's a that's a hard one and a matter for policymakers, hmm. not me. Of course, we we have. Um, Different relationships now with countries all over the world based on our mission sets and needs. So, through our cyber security, um, computer emergency response um, network, I think that extends to 160 countries around the world. So, and that all benefits us and them, and all helps us understand what's going on and what the threats are, and helps us piece together a much more holistic picture of what we're facing as a country.
2: Thank you, Rachel. I think you've um, uh, you've left us, I think, wanting more, but you've also issued, I think, a really, really important set of uh, illuminations, clarifications, correctives to the public debate. Uh, Rachel Noble, thanks for entrusting us with this conversation today, and please now join me in thanking our speaker.
1: And a big thanks to Rachel for speaking to us here at the National Security College. We are keen to hear from you on this matter. What role do you think ASD and the Australian intelligence community in general has to play in spying on Australians, whether that's at home or abroad, and what oversights should be in place to ensure that the public interest is aligned with the national interest in a way that protects personal freedoms and some of the bedrocks of liberal democracy that we often take for granted? To do so, you can get in touch with us on Twitter using Adapt's App's Policy Forum. You can speak to me directly using at NatsecPod. You can join the Policy Forum Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod, or you can drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. As always, we love it if you could give us a rating on whatever platform you pod with. We take all feedback you provide seriously. So thanks very much for listening to this episode and we will speak to you again soon on the National Security Podcast.